Well, welcome back to the Decarb Connect podcast. We've had a little bit of a hiatus while we were in planning phase for our upcoming event, but I'm really pleased to be back in it and very pleased to be joined by another disruptor tech because as people that listen to this know, you know, that's often the stories that I get really excited about. So very pleased today to be joined by Mihir Desu, who's the co-founder of Pressure Corp. And Mihir, you're a, a, well, a development company that transforms industrial waste pressure into clean energy. And I think something that will grab people's attention is that it's a business model that requires zero capital from the host facilities. So we'll get into that a little bit. And the other thing that I'll provide is context before having you give a bit of an introduction to you is that you're, what interests me is that you're one of a growing number of these energy and climate tech disruptors that are basing themselves in Houston. And uh, you're part of the Greentown Labs community there. So there's my kind of intro. Why don't, why don't you give us a bit of flavour for how you've arrived at this point in time and, and then we'll crack on into the main questions. Yeah. Thank you so much, Alex, for for having me on, on this podcast. It's it's really a pleasure, and um, yeah, ha- happy to be joining you at the conference here in Houston. So, um, if folks don't know, it's it's from the 29th through the 31st. Decarb Connect, come come join us. Um, it, it's going to be a great time. So yeah, I um, have been working in the clean energy industry for for the past decade, and um, I, I love the question of like how did you get started in the clean energy industry, you know, kind of before it was sexy or before it was cool. And, and for me, um, it was not necessarily like climate change or emissions. It was more of an equity issue. Um, and so when I was in high school, I was working in, uh, my, my dad's lab. So he's a electrical engineering professor and, uh, was teaching at the university of Massachusetts in Amherst. And, had gotten a couple of grants to work on researching different materials for solar cells and energy storage. Um, and so I got the chance to be a lab assistant for a summer, just changing fluids and beakers and pressing buttons to measure electricity between electrodes and to, to understand the efficiency. So essentially a, a lab jockey, um, writing down the results of different experiments. And I realized that like I did not want to get into hard hard research, but something about energy captivated me. And uh, when I had gone to India for a visit, um, I was with my mom, and we were entering this like pretty expansive like community um, gated community in New Delhi, and on the wall that was encapsulating the community from the outside there was essentially a shanty village on the other side and what i realized is like there's so much untapped uh, resources to help people to to make their lives better and one of the fundamental aspects of that is energy right like if you look at the economic growth trajectory of of the world right you had these like inflection points where the slope of G- GDP uh, grows significantly with you know the industrial revolution and then the ability to exploit oil and gas. And so when I looked at it, I was like, okay, there's these free resources, solar um, that I was working on in the lab that could potentially unlock another inflection point to generate even more 
uh, wealth and resources for you know communities that don't currently have access. And so that was really what drew me into wanting to tackle this challenge of, of working on you know how do we decarbonize society and and so that along with like you know the emissions and climate challenge uh, was what spurred me into the industry so after college I started uh, with a firm called energy GPS um, a couple former um, Enron traders shout out to Tim Belden and Jeff Richter uh, who taught me a lot about power markets and and how they operate and uh, it was my first taste into what development is project development um, how how do you know solar developers wind developers developers of you know natural gas plants like what do they need to look at from an economics perspective to ensure that they can get the financing necessary to construct and build their projects um, it, it, it was like a really interesting space to be in and and this is kind of in portland so um, did that for a little while and then moved to a firm that worked on energy efficiency program evaluation. Um, so it's called the Cadmus Group. And we evaluated um, the programs and um, ability for what we call implementers in the energy efficiency space, which are essentially project developers in energy efficiency, um, how well they achieve their targets for energy savings. And so we'd have programs for industrial facilities, but also for you know small and medium and commercial businesses as well as residential, where they would install different equipment that should achieve energy savings. And we would then on the back end evaluate whether or not you know they actually did by looking at you know the energy consumption data um, as well as like what the equipment was rated to save, right? Because there's a whole behavioral aspect to energy which is so fascinating to me um, that you can tell so much about humans' behaviors just by looking at uh, load curves. And so, so that was like a very interesting perspective of going from the demand side, taking a lens on that versus like formally being on the supply side and, and having that perspective. And so I, I moved from there to electrical utility in Portland, um, Portland General Electric, where I was responsible for um, the program scope around distributed energy resources. So uh, a lot of those programs are uh, net metering solar or value of solar, uh, energy storage, EV programs, demand response, pricing, all, all of those, like how do we get those approved and passed by the regulators and the stakeholders involved in that process? And um, so it had a stint on that side of the table and then I, I moved to another side of the table where we were helping to stand up the programs. How do you determine the right incentive levels to provide to customers um, to install like a smart water heater or a smart EV charger, smart thermostat, or even adopt solar batteries? And then on the back end, like how do these programs integrate with the utilities long term resource plan as well as um, on the operations side, how do these resources integrate with the broader resource portfolio on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, when can they be dispatched? How can they be dispatched? Like, what are the different tools that uh, operators need to put these programs into practice? What we've got there is that kind of familial, kind of personal connection to something that you you think is significant and has 
merit, which is that kind of the equity issue in energy. We then have this kind of electrical engineering experience that you had at a very young age. You then have kind of data, power markets, and this look, I guess, a different perspective of them. What makes people change behavior? What and, and what's driving behavior? So there's a few different inputs. So how how does pressure court, where, where did that step into pressure court happen? Right after the utility experience, I, I was a consultant and working with a lot of developers on how they integrate into different markets and, you know, basically build build projects. And I just before COVID happened to leave that firm trying to figure out my next move. And once COVID hit, I realized I didn't want to start a new job remotely and had been kind of seeing some of my friends starting to work in this space as project developers and realized like, hey, maybe maybe this is something that that I want to do as well. Um, and so uh, one of my friends um, has started a geothermal development company um, called Terrapin. His name is Sean Collins. And what he realized is that the same technology that they use for geothermal, it's called organic Rankin cycle, it, that machine uh, can be used for waste heat recovery to electricity generation. And so he started conducting site visits and realized, hey, there's not just a waste heat stream, there's also a waste pressure stream in a lot of these industrial facilities. So he was like, well, why don't we just apply the same type of business model that you know, he, he was kind of ideating on for, for waste heat uh, to waste pressure? And, and that's kind of how um, we started working on the concept of Pressure Corp and uh, testing out whether or not the, there's a market fit for what we could offer. And basically, that's zero capital down to industrial facilities um, for essentially paying them to access their waste pressure resources or their waste energy resources. Um, and we would then you know, install a project there, handle not just the cost of the equipment, but all the soft costs, the balance of system costs that go into installing that equipment at the facility, covering um, insurance for, for safety risk mitigation, other safety issues, which are huge concerns for industrial facilities, right? Because the risk um, of a project failure, a small project failure like a waste pressure project is, is incredibly asymmetric to what they could lose from downtime of their operations that are unplanned. And, and so a lot of times equipment providers don't offer any insurance for that, right? Their equipment is probably like a one, two year warranty, but the project lifetime is like 15, 20, you know, may, maybe even longer years. And, and so what we realized is like, this is an opportunity to come in, cover not only the equipment costs, but the soft costs of installation, capitalize that, and then go access cheaper third-party capital from infrastructure investors and basically take away opportunity costs from these industrial facility balance sheets who you know, could invest their resources into more productive and, and higher returning um, investments. So take away that pain point, but also be able to mitigate a lot of the risk of these projects um, actually performing or interrupting any type of operations. Okay, so then let's look at the kind of sectors that you're seeing this waste product be a particular, I guess, opportunity for you and issue for them. 
So what, what are those sectors and, and where where in their sites are these kind of points of waste pressure often cropping up? Is that is that easy to point to? The, the really interesting thing about waste pressure is uh, it happens in any sort of pipeline, right? And, and pipelines, I, I like to use the analogy of just roads, right? We have highways, we have local roads, same with the pipeline network. You have transmission pipelines, which are kind of like highways. You have distribution pipelines, which are kind of like local roads. So as you move gas from the highways, where the gas is traveling fast, which requires a lot of pressure, high pressure, to the local roads or the local pipes, distribution pipelines, um, you have to you know, put the brakes on. And through that process of putting the brakes on to reduce the speed of the gas going into these pipelines, um, you're depressurizing it. And the depressurization process requires this valve. It's a Jewel Thompson valve, um, also called you know, pressure relief valve. And um, they're scattered across the system whenever there's that point where you're going from the highway to the local road. And these valves essentially lose that energy to the atmosphere, right? right? They're venting often natural gas and causing fugitive emissions because these are often like mnemonic gas valves, which require some sort of gas to actually push the valve up or up or down. And often because the pipeline is transporting natural gas, they're using natural gas to to um, actuate that process and it releases fugitive emissions into the atmosphere. So what we do is we install this turbo expander in parallel and um, these pipelines or these pressure release valves can be you know, on the pipeline system itself. So owned by transmission pipeline companies. Um, some of the larger ones in North America are like Enbridge, Kinder Morgan, Boardwalk. It could also be at the point of entry of the pipeline into an industrial facility. And so most of the industrial facilities that we're targeting are using gas as a feedstock. So whether it is to create ammonia from natural gas or hydrogen or some other type of chemicals for you know, fertilizer, whatever it may be. So, so that's another target customer, um, as well as natural gas power plants. So um, we still have a lot of natural gas power plants um, running almost 24-7 to generate baseload electricity. It's, it's one of the cheaper resources that is dispatchable for you know, m- most of the hours of the day. And so because of the consistent flow, there's often also a pressure drop coming from the transmission pipes to the, to the gas plant. But we, we al- also get asked, like, you know, are, you, are you just working on natural gas pipelines? And, and the answer is no. The devices and, and the power plants that we're installing are agnostic to the type of gas in, in the pipes. So we're you know, prepped for the hydrogen economy um, as, as that starts getting ramped up as well. Okay, so that, that's always fun on an audio podcast to try and draw a visual image for listeners. But, but if we kind of imagine these points of entry into a pond or these points of exchange of pressure where you're uh, kind of taking that waste pressure. But if you were kind of trying to visualize for our listeners, like what, what happens then? So in really simplistic terms, because remember, people listening come from all kinds of backgrounds. So ha- what happens? Starting a little bit from, from the beginning, right? So you have high pressure gas coming into this valve. The valve, 
like your pressure cooker, releases the pressure of the gas to depressurize it and, and start moving slow. So in our system, what happens is the high pressure gas goes into a large tank. Um, uh, that, that's the main component of our system. It's called a turbo expander. And the, the tank, as the gas fills the volume of that tank, it starts to depressurize and also move a turbine through the work created in the depressurization process. And that the movement of the turbine generates electricity, and now the depressurized gas goes through an outlet pipe um, back into the system that it was supposed to go into um, in the first place. So we essentially capture the wasted work through the former process and turn it into electricity, whereas otherwise it would be wasted. And then, then the actual the, the power that's being generated, what is that going, I don't know, to the same organization that you're, you know, taking that waste pressure from? Or what, what's the business model around you have this power that you've generated? You know, what where does that go? Who's the off-taker? The off-taker can often depend on the situation. So we love when we're working with host customers that can also offtake the power. And oftentimes, you know, the the power that we're generating is um, is is not high enough. Um, you know, we're we're talking about like in in the small single digit megawatt scales or or below, like you know, high kilowatts, um, where the host customer can actually take that power and use it on site and displace power that they're um, buying from from the grid. So that's like the ideal situation in in situations where that's not possible we can also interconnect to the grid where you know there is a grid tie um, that is close enough and and makes economic sense um, that's often a more complicated process because you have to go through an interconnection process with um, the utility that owns the grid that you're interconnecting to or the wholesale market that owns uh, or that manages the grid that you're interconnecting to so um something that we we try to avoid when possible. And then a third option is um, there are a lot of, especially remote sites where, you know, you might have waste pressure and capturing that energy and turning into electricity where there's, you know, no load to take it um, would mean that that project is not viable. Well, there's, there's our new solutions to that. Um, and there's a lot of companies now that provide uh, distributed data centers, right? Or or also um, we, we've talked to a company that um, basically takes in power to have like distributed uh, grow factories for, you know, different type of types of vegetables or <laughs> even marijuana. And so, you know, the, the data centers and, and those type of grow factories um, are often things that we can use as solutions for remote loads where um, they wouldn't otherwise be present. Okay, so there's those kind of three three ways the model can work, which one of which is already in motion, one of which is a we're making this work with a collaborator, and the third is yeah, probably not for us. And then tell us a bit about this. You know, where, where it, where's the market opportunity in this to you? Like, I mean, there's obviously the more you talk, the more I'm like, well, there's millions of points of pressure where this could apply but what's your sense of um, like you know the scale of the market opportunity and, and that you could grab hold of not the wider all the possibilities but of the bit of the market that you can really grab hold of what what is that the scale of that yeah so um we're focused on the north american market mostly because power prices have been low here historically 
um, which has made these projects, you know, not worth uh, the IRR they could produce, right? Because we have to get probably to a target below or around five cents a, a kilowatt hour um, or $50 a megawatt hour uh, for, for a lot of these projects to work. And so uh, what has happened in, in North America is there's uh, more willingness from infrastructure investors to provide cheaper cost of capital, which is a huge lever in, in the project financial engineering because you can you know, justify producing lower um, electricity prices and, and taking lower returns because you have investors willing to take on um, those lower returns. The reason I, I mentioned kind of the power prices is um, basically the, the market opportunity in North America has been untapped. So in market oppor- markets like Japan, um, South Korea, in, in Europe, where electricity prices are much higher, a lot of these projects have actually been deployed. Um, so we see a market opportunity that we're trying to tackle immediately of, of like around three gigawatts. So so that's across North America. And so it's U.S., Canada, um, maybe even Mexico. It's not an initial focus for us. And, um, you know, that's three gigawatts of a total market you know, that, that a lot of it remains unaccessible to us, but of like 64 gigawatts of, of wasted um, pressure or wasted energy in the pressure space. Okay. And then you've already alluded there that the fact that there is, there are, you know, other regions where this kind of technology exists. And I know that when you and I were doing our prep call, you talked about the fact that it's not that your technology concept is new, but that previous kind of technology initiatives haven't really Worked. Part of that is obviously this pricing, market pricing issue that you've talked about. But what's what's different about? It's partly price, I get, but is there something different in the technology or the approach you're taking that also is going to help this kind of flourish in comparison to previous attempts? Aside, aside from like the cheaper cost of capital and the and the market pricing, um, there's also you know new incentives. Um, like the investment tax credit in the U.S. In, in Canada, there's a bunch of incentive programs like emissions reduction. Alberta is one. Um, but what we're doing that's kind of a unique approach is we're not just selling equipment to uh, a customer, to a host customer. Um, and, and often it's still the case today where the equipment that a host customer could buy and install themselves often has like a one year warranty. And, you know, they don't cover any risk um, that the equipment could cause to interrupt uh, operations at the facility. Um, they, they also are, don't have warranties that extend through the life of the equipment. Um, you know, they're not responsible for the installation themselves. They're just selling the equipment. So anything that happens, you know, in, in a negative way during installation is, is kind of on the host customer. And so all of these things make it very difficult for a manager of an industrial facility to like put the risk in to install something that you know has such marginal upside um, for for him as as or her as a facility manager, right? Be- because of that, they they don't want to take it take it on. So our approach is we are not actually providing equipment to a facility, right? We are responsible for the installation development and operation of a project, which includes holding the risk of 
anything that happens to facility operations, holding the risk of installation. And, and we approach installation in a very uh, risk mitigated fashion. Uh, we install in parallel to existing equipment as a fail safe. Uh, we install only during scheduled maintenance. So there is not additional interruption time that is required for our equipment to be installed. And then we handle not only the installation or not only the cost of the equipment itself, but the soft costs, the balance of system costs of like putting the piping in from our system to the, the pipelines on, on the facility, building out like the electrical componentry to take the electricity generated from uh, our system to wherever it's being used, whether, you know, that's the grid or the host customer. Um, so, so all of these things that traditional um, Torbix vendor manufacturers do not provide is, is kind of our unique value proposition. Okay, so it's the whole model. It's not just the technology, but it's also that that whole approach to the full project life cycle and, and risk management as well. So, so here's a question for you. You mentioned in that intro uh, where you were talking about how you've arrived at this point in time, you, you said that one of the drivers had been a more, more of a personal driver in a way, uh, which was about playing a role and being a driver of the, the kind of equitable energy transition. So I'm kind of curious about how Pressure Corp feeds into that? How does it feed that particular driver? Yeah, thank you so much for asking that. So in industrial emissions account for, you know, almost 30% of global emissions. 51% um, of energy generated for industrial use is wasted. And so wasted energy accounts for almost like 15% of global emissions. And it's, it's not often realized or understood that most of the economically disadvantaged communities are in close proximity to industrial facilities and take the brunt of the emissions that are generated at those facilities. Um, there was a recent New York Times article that actually measured um, or had a study on, on the impact of emissions to uh, communities that are historically redlined in, in the U.S., right? And um, because the real estate values are lower, you often have industrial facilities cited there. You have highways that are cited there that create a lot of these emissions. And so Pressure Corp and other companies that are working on industrial decarbonization by reducing emissions in these highly industrialized locations, you're actually reducing emissions in, in these communities as well. And, you know, all the positive impacts of reducing emissions, which is like better health outcomes um, and, you know, better performance in school, but better economic ladders, all of these like result from from a lot of that. So that, that's kind of the connection there. OK, well, you, you'd already mentioned a bit earlier on about who your core audience is, which is this kind of group that extends from uh, gas pipeline operators through to uh, gas to X producers and manufacturers or the power generators. So when you're talking to companies like that or organizations like that what what about this do you find is like the trigger point what is it that makes them go oh i'm on we're up for it i mean there's a lot of compelling stuff that you talked about around technology but there are also as you know a lot of disruptors offering a lot of projects to a lot of companies so what is it that tends to grab someone uh, about this times have changed where you know emissions reduction reductions are uh, not just something that, you know, is being required from a regulatory perspective or a policy perspective, but it's it's really a problem that individuals within these companies want to see changed. 
Um, and so, you know, we're not offering a panacea uh, of a solution, right? Like the projects that we're installing, you know, are, are relatively small uh, on a, you know, scale basis around like single digit megawatts, like two to five, sometimes even less in, in unique situations, sometimes more. But the, f- the fact that we could go to a pipeline company and, and help them um, with the solution to, you know, maybe the, a thousand of their pressure release valves and, and say, look at that data and say, oh, okay, you know, there's like 10 to 20 opportunities that maybe we could actually um, move forward on and, and basically create a, a decarbonization strategy specifically for waste pressure. I, I think that is, is what is engaging folks. In addition, it's, it's like the, the ESG story, right? Um, it, it means a lot, not, not just on a personal per perspective of the folks that we're interacting with, um, but also leadership of these companies. And most importantly, it's, it's making a big impact to shareholders. You know, I'll, I'll give an example of uh, another member company in, in Greentown. Uh, shout out to Sean and, and Danny at Criterion. Uh, they recently closed a, a seed round of financing. Um, and one of their investors is a publicly traded oil field services company called uh, Patterson UTI. And their investment into Criterion, when it was announced, raised their market cap by like 67 million. So it's not just like an ESG story from like a feel-good perspective, but it has it has real upside in, in the capital markets. Okay. And then actually we'll we'll jump on that because you mentioned Criterion and the stage that they've just gone through in their in their journey and their growth. Where are you guys at? What what stage are you at in terms of phases of development and your your own financing? Yeah, I think thanks for asking. So um, we have been bootstrapping the company uh, to date. And we, you know, are increasing our pipeline of projects and and want to have, you know, a, a solid pipeline of projects that are, you know, on the pathway towards financing uh, before we raise our seed round. So we we are planning to to do that in, in May. And so what, what sort of project mix are you expecting to be able to announce at that point? Is there, I, mean, I know you may not want to mention names of organizations, but what types of installations are going to be part of that? platform do you think yeah so so we're talking to like municipal natural gas utilities so kind of on the distribution side of things um also transmission uh gas utilities so you know um some of the larger pipeline companies um so you know installing projects there as well as like uh, a few uh, power plants um so you know on potentially university campuses um that that might be interested as well and can you talk to all about the kind of scale of that seed round? What what are you aiming for from that? So we're working on uh, developing our um, hiring plan and and understanding, uh, you know, how much capital we we need for that. And we're in a unique spot where you know there's a few different types of capital that we can access. And so optimizing how much we want from each stack is is kind of what we're working on right now. And, and I'll, I'll dig into that a little bit because I think some folks might find it interesting. So in project development, you, you have like three capital sources, right? There's um, corporate capital for your company itself to pay for uh, G&A of employees and, and other travel type expenses. And then we often talk about project finance, right? So 
there's different types of project finance. Um, there's finance that comes in when a project is ready for construction. Um, there's finance that comes in when a project is operational to, to actually buy the project. Um, and then there's finance before a project is construction ready, which is kind of where we do most of our work. It's called the development phase. And so development capital is another area where um, we, we can access financing. And so kind of our, the reason I'm not giving you a specific answer is we're still trying to figure out, you know, is there sources of, are there sources of development capital um, that can offset the need for, uh, you know, going out to market for uh, more venture capital for our business itself? Well, my best is that somewhere in the audience that we have, there are people that go, yes, and I can tell you about them. So if that's you and you're listening, have a look in the show notes because we will include contact information and some links to Mihir and his co-founder's company. And of course, you can always um, contact me as well. But um, actually, that that last comment you're making about development capital kind of then points into a, another question that I had for you. I know that you describe yourself as a development company, but what, what does that mean? You know, in this landscape of all kinds of startups focusing on all kinds of things, what, what does it mean to be a development company? There's a little bit of misperception in the space or misunderstanding of what a development company is. Oftentimes when you mention, oh, yeah, you know, we're working on a development company, people are like, what, you're a software development company? <laughs> so um, it, I think there there needs to be a little bit more uh, awareness of, of what project development companies do and, and what they are. So essentially, we are the ones that work on taking a technology and actually deploying it into a into market, into into a project. Right. And so it's not as simple as like a widget that you can just sell to a business or, you know, consumer where, you know, there's no regulatory requirements that you have to satisfy. There's no permitting requirements that you have to satisfy. Um, there's no interconnection requirements. You don't have to find someone to buy electricity, right? The commodity that we're actually selling as a project developer is you know, either electricity or hydrogen or carbon offsets. Um, it's, it's not the project itself, right? It's not the equipment itself. And so uh, what we do as a project developer is kind of take all those puzzle pieces and put them together in a way that makes sense for all the stakeholders involved. So that includes the host customer, that includes you know any regulatory agencies, any um, uh, utilities or or you know wholesale markets, as well as like the financiers. And there's you know different types of financiers that I that I mentioned before. Um, and I think there's a misperception that there's not a lot of technology that project developers have um, within their uh, company because depending on on what market you're in uh, if you're a project developer that is getting first to market and you have some of the first deployments in the space you're developing a lot of know-how and understanding and you're capturing a lot of data to develop tools to make your process a lot more efficient and so that includes like understanding which equipment providers are are actually reliable how, how much energy is your project going to generate um, based on like what it's forecasted to generate? Uh, how does it actually integrate with different types of facilities and their operations? Uh, all of those lessons learned are things that you integrate into your you know, IP stack. It's, it's kind of like an underrated uh, type of company because we need more of them in the space to deploy the climate technologies necessary to meet the climate targets. 
Okay. And so right now then, so you've, as you explained, you're heading towards your, your seed financing round. You're kind of getting this first swathe of your projects ready to present at that. What in... I'm kind of interested in in your relationship with the Greentown Labs community. Like, how do they help you in that? I, I guess some people listening will definitely know a lot about Greentown Labs, but some may not. So what's been the benefit to you, given that that kind of plan of being part of a Greentown Labs community there in Houston? Being at Greentown Labs, I, I think the best value that I've, I've come out of it with is just the organic interactions that I've had um, being in the community, right? So, um, Talking to people in the co-working space, other other member companies, um, the events that happen around the space, and, and maybe something that I didn't hear about, a colleague um, in the co-working space will tell me about, or or the staff will invite us to, um, and and kind of help us get integrated within the broader uh, Houston energy transition community. Um, that that's been a tremendous benefit, um, and it's it's a very new. Uh, incubator and, and space, right? It's only been around for um, almost a year. Uh, I think the one-year anniversary is is next month. And so uh, it, it feels like being here in Houston at this time where you have a lot of these like traditional energy players starting to transition to, um, you know, cleaner resources or, or newer resources uh, in the energy space, like they, they need the know-how and uh, understanding like the different solutions that are out there and, and being here, having experience on, on, you know, more of the energy tech side. Um, it, it's a good place to start to, you know, provide some of that knowledge and know-how to, to folks learning um, as well as like grow the community here. And so, so being here on the ground floor of that is, is pretty exciting. Well, we're looking forward to it. It's, what day is it today? 21st of March today. And um, here and I will be meeting each other next week at our event. And part of that is actually to go and visit um, a couple of disruptive facilities, but also Greentown Labs itself to hear about the work they're doing with partly their Carbon to Valley cohort, but also the wider community that you're a part of. So it'll be great to see you there. Um, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's kind of, it's really interesting hearing about just this slightly earlier stage than often perhaps uh, we do feature on the podcast, but it just feels like such an interesting point in time for you. And um, maybe we can get you back after the seed capital round so that we can talk about the scaling plans and what's going to come next. Thank you so much, Alex. Great to have you. Many thanks for listening to the Decarb Connect podcast. We work with clients across the industrial sectors specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.